This is Rockin' Vino, the podcast about wine and music and how the two go so well together. Find new episodes every Tuesday on Spotify, Apple Music, and wherever podcasts are offered. Find the show online at rockinvino.com and on social media at Rockin' Vino. And after a little bit of a break, a shelter-in-place break, we are back with a, a new episode of Rockin' Vino, getting through as everyone is, <laughs> as best we can. Uh, really going to be an interesting uh, interesting episode today. Going to dive into the, the sen- food and the senses and, and how they relate to each other and uh, really interesting stuff here. Uh, joining us today is, uh, is Charles Spence. He is a professor of experimental psychology and director of the Crossmodal Research Laboratory at the University of Oxford. He's joining us from the UK. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time. And, and I would say staying up late. It's not too late there, but thanks, thanks for uh, joining us late there in the, in the UK. That's a pleasure. <laughs> uh, so your most recent book is uh, Sense Hacking, How to Use the Power of Your Senses for a Happier, Healthier Living. Uh, you work in a really interest, interesting research study. Uh, describe a little bit about about what you do and what it is you're looking at. So I'm a uh, psychologist by training, been here in Oxford University for the last quarter of a century or so, uh, and run the lab, the cross-modal lab that you mentioned, uh, where we're really interested in the senses, how people see and hear and smell and taste and feel the world around them. Uh, and in particular, how the senses kind of talk to each other. So how what you see can change what you hear, how what you smell can change what you taste. Uh, and we try and take the latest insights from brain science and from neuroscience, psychological science, um, and apply them to the real world uh, in order to design better by understanding the brain of the consumer or the user or the drinker, whoever it might be. Uh, and over the years, that's taken us from designing warning signals that activate parts of the brain you didn't even know you had to make driving safer, paint colors to make you more productive. But increasingly over the last um, uh, 15 years or so, we've been working more and more in the world of food and drink. Uh, one of the areas that's perhaps the, one of the most multi-sensory things that we do. So it's a natural place for someone like myself to end up, but one that has been sort of strangely neglected by many of my uh, psychology colleagues because food and drink is just kind of messy to deal with. <laughs> I, I was going to say, it seems like, especially with food and drink, there's so many different factors uh, at play at one time that, that would impact that. Is that, uh, is that the case? Uh, I think, yes. Um, probably, you know, there, there, are, there are a few things that get our brain as active um, as the sight of our favorite food um, when we're hungry. Uh, I think Gordon Shepard has this great line that you know, there's nothing that activates your brain quite as much as a glass of wine. <laughs> um, so there are a lot of factors involved there from both the sensory inputs, uh, what does something look like, what does it smell like, through to its taste and its texture, maybe the pain involved in, in chili. But beyond that, of course, uh, whatever we eat and drink, the flavors therein kind of will also connect to memory, to mood, to emotion, uh, and so many other factors. Um, which is part of what makes it challenging, of course, uh, but also really um, interesting. And for me, it's 
I think um, there's been maybe I don't know, uh, a lot of research on kind of the chemical composition of flavors and foods. So the science of food, kind of the molecular gastronomy, if you will, or modernist cuisines, kind of the science of kitchen and, and new techniques and new ingredients and new preparation methods. The science has been there in the kitchen around the preparation of food. But no one's been really thinking about the science uh, of the senses, the science of the person who does the drinking or the eating. And that's where I come in, not creating new recipes per se, but thinking about how things like the wine glass or the cutlery uh, impact uh, the tasting experience. Things that you know, virtually no one looks at, you know, despite the fact that most of the food that we eat, uh, we get to our mouths by knife, fork or spoon. Uh, most of the drinks that we have always come in a receptacle, a glass, a bottle, a can, a cup, a mug, you name it. Um, virtually everyone studies the drink itself or the food, and very few people have studied the cutlery or the glass. And our, our, our research is really trying to show just what a big impact all of these kind of external factors actually have on the tasting experience and how they can be optimized in order to enhance what it is that we like about what we taste. And this is truly fascinating uh, research. And you've, um, how did you get started in this field? And um, and what are maybe some of the surprises that you found along the way with, with everything that you've researched and, and found? So uh, the, the whole world of the, the multi-sensory, though I'd call it, or cross-modal, how the senses affect each other, really came about when I was a, a student and, and uh, had to do a project, an experiment, and had no idea what to do. And uh, then I went to see somebody who had a broken television um, and had the sounds kind of coming out through his loudspeakers of his hi-fi. He was a DJ, uh, and he sort of noticed this strange experience he had that at the start of movies, when people came around to his tiny little bedsit, uh, they wouldn't realize there was anything funny about the sound coming out through the loudspeakers of the, of the hi-fi, not the TV. And then as soon as the credits had rolled and the first character started to speak, suddenly it was like a disconnect. The, the voice was there in front of you on the screen, but the, the sound of the voice was coming from these speakers somewhere else, uh, like incongruent. And then a few seconds later, your brain would magically, as it often does, kind of glue everything back together and you'd start hearing the voices from the lips you saw moving on the screen. And ever since, I've been thinking about that sort of situation. How do the senses combine? Why... Um, do we sometimes find it hard to look and listen at the same time? Uh, and as the years go by, sort of adding more and more uh, senses into the equation. Uh, and our lab is sort of funded primarily through industry. And it was uh, through that, uh, through companies like Unilever and at the time ICI, a big uh, sort of paints, chemicals company in the UK, uh, who got me into the world of, of taste and smell. Uh, and I sort of had to be dragged there because none of my colleagues in psychology study taste and smell. They only study things you can present on a computer. Um, but one day they said, well, you know, we've got a problem with our tea. Will you come and um, you know, put your sort of psychological hat on and think about what's going wrong with our fruit teas that smell great, that look great. <laughs> but when consumers taste them, it's kind of disappointing. It's flat. There's nothing there. <laughs> what's going wrong here? Um, and, uh, yeah, sort of got me into food. Um and uh, for me, the first thing was was really uh, the Sonic Chip, which was which we won the Ig Nobel, the opposite of the Nobel Prize for in <laughs> 2008, where we had people, undergraduates, hungry undergraduates here in Oxford, uh, munching, crunching into two tubes of a famous brand of potato chip-like thing. Uh, and each time they crunched um, 
we change the sound of their crunch, making it louder or quieter or, or just boosting certain high frequency components of that crunching sound. And we were able to make their crisps or potato chips, as I think you call them, uh, about 15 percent crunchier, fresher, more enjoyable simply by changing the sound. And, and that was sort of surprising. Um, uh, and that led into a whole world of research around the senses and flavor. And, and perhaps the most surprising thing since has been, uh, uh, on the one hand, uh, working with chefs, um, people like Heston Blumenthal, who, who was the world's top chef a few years ago and has a restaurant very close to Oxford. Uh, and we once did an experiment with him on playing the sounds of the sea uh, while serving people uh, oysters. And bizarrely, the sounds of the sea made the seafood taste better. So not talking about the sound of crunch anymore, but just kind of ambient sounds mm -hmm. could change taste was was amazing. And that led into a dish that the chef and his team created that became the signature dish, the sound of the sea dish at the restaurant. Then people came along and said, well, after a few years, well, that's obvious, isn't it? You know, that, that seaside sounds make seafood taste better. What else was going to happen? So in hindsight, some things that you find surprising can end up, you know, being treated as obvious. And it's for that reason that, that what has, has captured our attention most over the last eight or ten years is this taking this idea of ambient sound further and that gets you into the world of sonic seasoning whereby we can pick or create or compose uh, musical soundscapes to deliberately enhance or suppress a certain aspect of what you're tasting and that you know that, that classical music should make wine taste different that should make a soft drink taste sweeter or your coffee less bitter that's really surprising to people uh, it just sort of doesn't make sense and part of why it's quite so fun to kind of investigate and study We're working at this interface between the sort of basic research uh, and I can't you know, play an instrument for my life. So working with composers <laughs> and sound designers, as well as, you know, um, food and drinks professionals or, or brands who can sort of bring to the table uh, uh, interesting, complex tasting experiences that we can play with, that we can synchronize with music and with lights and, and with strange glasses and, uh, and whatever else. That's amazing. And now if somebody wanted to experiment uh, like this at home, um, is there a song or is there um, some sort of audio file that they can listen to and experiment with, with maybe coffee or whatever kind of um, or mm -hmm. wine even? You know, we love wine here. So <laughs> anything <laughs> like that just to kind of enhance uh, the flavor of what it is that we're already enjoying to make it that even to make it even better? Uh, yes. So um in some of our work, we kind of create special soundscapes uh, to kind of um, optimally bring out a taste. So we have, you know, we find that people will associate uh, bitterness with a low pitch sound. So in some of our experiments, we've been serving people chocolates or, or, or red wines with this kind of very <laughs> sort of a sound recorded in a in a car a motorway sort of underpass, um, which maybe is not maybe is on the on the internet somewhere, maybe not. Uh, we have sounds that are very high in pitch. Tinkling piano seems to bring out sweetness. The sound of the flute, the clarinet, is sort of sweet rather than sour. And we also have been working with mathematicians and others to, to create the spiciest and the sourest music. So some of those are available. Um, and I can... Uh, uh, I don't have the I don't have the uh, the SoundCloud link off the top of my head, but it's out there. But probably Sonic Seasoning will work to get you some of these soundscapes. Um, but for those who are just thinking about something, you know, from... Uh, that you can get from Spotify or wherever else, um, then uh, look for something you know, really low pitch if you want to bring out bitterness, which is not something most people want to do, but there are some who like the chocolate very dark. 
uh, maybe some of your Gregorian chants seem to be pretty low pitched uh, uh, there. Um, through to my favourites are um, some of uh, uh, sort of Carnival of the Animals. Sanson has a couple of songs in there with sort of tinkling, tinkling pianos. Uh, if you remember Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells, that's got a great couple of tinkly sweet tracks in there. Or um, uh, Bow Drumming um, from Steve Reich, I think, has also some very interesting tinkly tracks. Um, and for the, sour, for the sour taste, you're looking you know, to bring out your sort of sharp music, as it were. Uh, probably again, higher in pitch, uh, maybe rougher with more sort of transitions in the music. So we sort of have these sort of musical menus now for people to pick. Um, but probably, if I were you, then um, it would seem that classical music is perhaps the way to go, given that uh, we seem to rate things as tasting better. Something about the mm. class of classical music uh, seems to enhance the experience of food and of uh, drink. And uh, uh, we have uh, Beethoven late string quartets for example um very depressing sort of stuff they seem to go quite well with a nice old bordeaux wine uh, or mozart flute or clarinet concerto uh in our studies is very often mapped to uh, uh white wines instead and hence being mapped to means that it will normally enhance uh that associated uh, uh taste have you found with uh chefs and restaurateurs uh, that they're embracing this more maybe when they're designing a menu or designing a restaurant concept that these are factors that they're paying more attention to than they may have otherwise been previously uh i think that's certainly the case um there are now some restaurants some of those sort of experiential uh, more molecular san pellegrino world top 50 sort of uh michelin star places that do have a number of the courses now that come with sonic accompaniment i work with one great uh, young chef joseph Youssef in from london who's got a gastrophysics chef's table and about three or four of the courses come with headphones or soundscapes designed to augment the uh, the tasting experience uh one of my sort of favorite examples uh, from his menu currently he has this you start the meal with um, a plate of well uh, some tweezers wrapped around which is a little bit of jellyfish. Jellyfish, something that no one really likes the sound of, in the West at least, but common in Eastern cuisines. Jellyfish that our seas are full of these days because of global warming. Uh, we can't get rid of the stuff. It's blocking up pipes and this, that and the other. Uh, and maybe the best thing to do would be to eat it. It's sort of healthy-ish, sustainable, certainly, as an alternative food source. And this comes as the first dish on the menu at the gastrophysics chef's table, uh, and it comes together with a headset with a you know, projection of the sea over the table itself. And the sounds you hear over the headset co combine both the sounds of the sea, kind of bloop, 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 <laughs> of uh, what you might expect the jellyfish to be floating in, uh, on top of which there are these periodic crunching sounds. Uh, because what jellyfish has, it, it has no taste. It's just texture. And, and really the main sensation of jellyfish is actually the crunch. So we're trying there with this soundscape to both you know, reference where the jellyfish come from through the, through the, the, the uh, waves and the water sounds and then enhance the crunch of the jellyfish itself through, through, the, through the sort of crunching sounds in the soundscape. And by so doing, if you can make that first experience uh, great, then hopefully you, people will be more 
likely to buy or to order jellyfish when they subsequently see it somewhere than they otherwise uh, might. That's a, the, the, you know, the, sort of the, the best end for me of, of, of um, bringing sonic seasoning uh, uh, to the table. Of course, for many more traditional uh, places, that's going to be a bit harder to do. Um, so if you run a wine bar, say, then you, you might say, well, what, what do I do if you know people are, 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 are uh, every table, every 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 customer maybe have a different glass of wine in their hand? Mm-hmm. Is there any music that will be universally suited? Um, and the answer is uh, probably not. So it's a bit more of a challenge. I know that if I play classical music, you'll spend more. So that's of interest to many <laughs> restaurateurs and, uh, <laughs> uh, and wine shop owners. Um, if I play French classical music, then you'd be more likely to order a French uh, wine than a Whereas if I play some umpa umpa German music, people order uh, the German wine instead. Even though they say that's what I always wanted all along. <laughs> Did the music influence you? No. I, um, and yet the evidence from the kind of research that we and others have been doing shows just how profoundly that music can affect both what we choose to order, how much we choose to spend, and then how quickly we quaff whatever happens to be in our glass. Um, and I think so then the recommendations for these kind of, you know, more mainstream venues where people may be tasting different things at different times where it's inappropriate to bring headphones to the table along with a plate or the glass uh, there. The other tips are the classical angle is good. And also uh, increasingly we find that the more you like the music that's playing, the more you like whatever it is you're tasting. Mm-hmm. And then you go into so many, or I do at least, go into so many bars and restaurants and, and places you know, with, with young chefs and, and so on who are, who are passionate about the food and the ingredients and the sourcing and what they serve. Um, and then they just don't think about their music. They just let the, you know, the manager put their iPod on or something. And you get you know, these horrible combinations of Bing Crosby singing Happy Christmas <laughs> in the middle of June in a curry house in an Indian restaurant. It's like all wrong and and, and so I don't necessarily have this, the perfect solutions for, for, for all of these cases. Um, I think what, what we are seeing is a growing awareness that perhaps the sonic element is the is very important in the way we experience and behave, but also it's perhaps the easiest aspect of the environment uh, to change. Whereas if I told you that you know Baker Miller pink, that sort of bubblegum pink colour, would make your customers do this, that or the other, then maybe it's true, but you know, painting the calls pink, that's something that's going to take more time, more effort, and be a little bit harder to change. Whereas music, we can turn it on, turn it off, up or down, uh, and maybe sort of synchronize it in some way uh, with our particular clientele and the sort of offering that, that that we have in mind. Now, for the things the things that are our favorite foods, um, what uh, is that just taste? I mean, what's happening kind of in our brain that associates these foods that this is something we like? Is it just taste or is it, as you mentioned before, is it memories? Is it other things, kind of contextual things that are happening at the time? What, what all kind of plays into that in our brains? Mm-hmm. So in terms of uh, favorite foods, favorite flavors, that's a... Uh kind of a difficult one um to answer i certainly think it's much more than just about the chemical composition much more than just about what that food or drink or flavor does to our taste buds um that is kind of sensory appeal uh it's much more likely to involve emotional nostalgic kind of connections um and you know i've sort of looked into the world you know for, for many people uh, food can serve as an emotional crutch in terms of sort of comfort foods that we eat when we feel threatened or when we feel like the world is an unsafe place, as we're seeing very much at the moment in the current pandemic. 
uh, people kind of you know uh, uh, regressing if that's the word i'm not sure to to comfort foods to nostalgia foods to familiar brands of childhood um uh, and foods that uh yeah, mysteriously, you don't seem to require teeth for things like, you know, uh, was it uh, instant trifle and uh, <laughs> yes. uh, uh, custards and jellies and things that, you know, um, so maybe unthreatening foods, whereas angular foods, crunchy foods might be uh, unusual, exotic flavors, probably the things that we go for when we feel safe about the world and our place in it, whereas um, something different uh, appeals at other times. So I think that, that that emotional element is really important. And that probably when we come into the world, uh, we're born only liking the taste of sweetness and of umami, that sort of mysterious MSG-like fifth taste. Um, everything else, we're born disliking bitterness, we're born disliking sourness, we don't learn how to taste salt for a few months. But everything else in food or drink or flavour, the meaty, the floral, the herbal, the creamy, uh, the burnt, um, whatever it might be, those things are are mostly given by our nose and are mostly acquired as a result of uh, experience of what that that flavor that aroma has been paired with and so very often that um we, we sort of learn to like bitter things because you know coffee i'm not sure anyone's born liking coffee but we learn that it contains caffeine uh many people learn to like uh, the taste of you know, beer and other things because of the alcohol other foods because of the sugar and so on or the fat so it's all a matter of learning, um, and, and those foods that, that seem to appeal to us most, uh, the ones that, uh, in my previous book I call The Perfect Meal, I sort of try to search out what is you know the, the, the perfect meal, perfect flavour, different for each and every one of us, but I think there are some commonalities there that we can pick up on and then try and integrate into, into meal experiences or drink experiences that we are designing or offering. Absolutely. And, you know, you brought up a really good point, um, especially with the pandemic right now and how we're all um, <clears throat> kind of going to the comfort foods, the foods that, you mm -hmm. know, maybe aren't so good for us, but they make us feel good. And that kind of ties back to your most recent book that you released earlier this year, Sense Hacking, and how to use the power of your senses for healthier, happier living. Um, what are some of the the tools in this book that, that people can implement in their lives right now that would kind of help them mm -hmm. and while well, they're stuck at home you know make it yep. make it a better more enjoyable experience yep um so in the sense hacking that's really sort of taking the power of the senses um and thinking about it, everyday life about how our senses affect us in the home uh, at work if we going to work still you know when commuting uh when shopping uh when at the gym and when dating and so on um and there uh, i think one of the big finds is, 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 is to sort of realize just how much each of our senses does affect us because very often we don't realize it uh think about you know the, the smell of our home uh something that we're mostly anosmic most of us can't smell our own home unless when we come back you know from a long trip away and suddenly there's a strange smell well that, that is the smell of your home but as we adapt to it normally it's always there so what is it doing to our mood to our emotion to our relaxation to our stress levels to our sleep um, and I think probably you can harness all of our senses to to deliver a better balance of multisensory stimulation. Um, one that probably leads to a shift away from, you know, many people talk about sensory overload, there's too much going on. But when you sort of drill down into it and look at what people are complaining about, there are very few people out there who are complaining, I'm getting too many smells or, or too many tastes or too much touch. <laughs> Most of what we complain about is an overload of visual information 
and uh, of sounds and noise and distraction. And these are sort of the vision and hearing are our higher senses. We can get more information in, but they're not very emotional senses. And what's been neglected, I think, in this sort of sensory imbalance that many of us are suffering from is you know, the stimulation of our more emotional senses uh, of smell, of taste, of touch. Uh, and so sort of shift in that direction. And also a shift to, uh, I think, the sort of you know phenomenal power of, of, of what's come to be known as sort of the nature effect. You know, that... Um, even you know, getting out into the garden, getting out into nature has a profoundly beneficial effect on our mood, on our well-being, on our stress levels. Uh, be that, you know, just get, getting into one's own garden, going out to plant something, sort of, you know, grow your own, uh, going out into the woods or to nature. Uh, it just has it's just an amazing effect. And for me, it's sort of interesting to say, is it is it the sights of nature that are so good for us? Is it the smells of nature? Is it the sounds? Because if it's the sounds, I can you know, download something from, from YouTube that has the sounds of nature. Or do you have to really be there? Or is it when all the senses come together that you can sort of get the biggest benefit uh, for our well-being? Uh, 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 and while it might seem that, well, we all sort of know that or we should all realise what's good for us, what the evidence suggests is that we're very sort of bad at kind of forecasting the effects on us and on our well-being of something like going for a walk in nature. That we all underestimate just how powerful uh, that can be um, the natural light the natural sense uh, and so on so that's kind of a key theme of the book how can you bring either get out into nature more uh, how can you design you know commuting and roadways so that they that they, they are, are are more naturally stimulating how can you design workplaces or homes or even the bedroom so that you can kind of capture uh, use this sort of nature effect be it through aromatherapy smells or or well-being bouquets that are becoming more popular now. There are flowers that are picked to put in, in in a vase at home that not only look good but also release some of the uh, scents uh, that have been demonstrated to help relax, uh, uh, make your home look cleaner in, in some cases, uh, or make make you sleep better. And things a lot, a lot there for all of us to, to take up, especially at this time you know, when people are, are suffering about sort of social isolation um, and, a, and an absence of emotional contact, uh, thinking of ways to, to connect people over a distance, realising just how important kind of the social aspects of dining are. Um, and this is something, you know, how, how, do you, how can you maintain emotional contact at a distance? My father is, is 85 and he lives... Uh, he's supposed to be isolated, not going out, not seeing anybody for the last few months. Uh, and we know that's so bad for people's mental, physical and emotional well-being. Uh, how can we reconnect through, is it, uh, you know, digital digital dining together? Is that one of the ways forward? Is it robot hugs? Uh, <laughs> or, or what can we do? Because uh, you know, the, these problems about spending so much of our time indoors... And in so much of our time, especially now under lockdown, under kind of restricted environments that are less, in some ways, less sensory stimulating, less varied, it's all the more important to try and use those sensory inputs that surround us all the time as best we can uh, to, to, to help. Be it, you know, if, if, if to sleep better because so many of us can't sleep very well, especially again under, under lockdown, uh, or is it you know, to, to pay, be more mindful, be more attentive to all of the nature that surrounds us. Uh, in the way that many of the journalists have been sort of reporting, have been collecting, cutting out the, the things from the newspapers that, that when lockdown started, suddenly there were no cars on the roads, there's no transport, there are no airplanes overhead here in Oxford, and suddenly you can start hearing the sounds of the birds. 
the sounds of nature that were probably all there along, but were always masked by road noise, by traffic noise, by aeroplane noise. Uh, and now that you can hear them and you're more mindful of them, I think it's that sort of you're paying attention to, 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 to these sort of sensory cues that can really elevate their, their beneficial effect for us. Now, it kind of as an extension of that, uh, what happens when we lose one of the senses? Does the does the body compensate for that? How what kind of impact does that have um, on us in the way we take consume mm-hmm. the different senses? Um, so it sort of depends a bit which sense you lose and when you lose it as to uh, what happens. Um, what has sort of I think surprised uh, myself and many other uh, uh, neuroscientists in recent years is just how much plasticity there is in the brain uh, to deal with the consequences of sensory loss, say, later in life. Um, and that sort of the saying that our, our brain abhors a vacuum and that so if you, know, if, if you lose your sense of vision, you lose your sight uh, as, as an adult, then that whole part of the brain, the biggest part of your brain devoted to one sense, the visual cortex at the back of your head, that doesn't sit there idle because you can't see anymore. But in fact, you see it being recruited by the touch part of your uh, brain or your your senses. And and so that's partly why, because of this cross-modal plasticity, um, that people who are blind can sometimes hear better, feel better, and possibly maybe also smell better or differently than uh, those who have not uh, lost uh, a sense. Should say that it, sort of, it doesn't really depend when you lose. Uh, there are sort of critical periods about how you can redistribute your brain's um, kind of capacity, um, and that while you know when you ask people mostly which sense would you least like to lose if you had to make that terrible choice, then everyone immediately says vision. I'd hate to lose my sight, mm-hmm. um, and yet uh, this becomes especially important given the emerging evidence regarding the loss of smell. Uh, as a result of, uh, of COVID-19, then uh, the actual evidence actually suggests that those who lose their sense of smell have a much worse quality of life and are more likely to commit suicide than those who lose vision. And why should that be so? Well, in fact, you know, sort of smells there all around. It it, 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 it it informs us. It's very important in sort of in mating and social interactions and bonding. It's crucial in food and so on. And when that goes, uh, you really lose a lot of the most pleasurable activities in life. And when that goes, when the sense of smell is taken away, be it temporarily, hopefully, in those who've had uh, COVID, some of those who've had COVID, or permanently, um, then for many people, they, they, they can't really imagine what smells are like. Whereas those who lose their vision, um, and there are a number of sort of famous documented cases of this, those who lose their sight as adults, for the first few years, they can still remember when they hear their wife's voice, what she looked like. They can use their visual imagery, kind of make up for the loss of their actual sight. Whereas in smell, when smell is lost, for most people, they, they don't have that capacity to imagine what things used to smell like. Um, and hence, it's a much more bleak sensory environment and, and why I think we should be a lot more worried. And certainly a lot of the sensory scientists are doing a lot of work on this loss of smell uh, as one of the key symptoms of, of COVID uh, and what it's caused by. Uh, 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 and how temporary, hopefully, the uh, consequences will be. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And uh, in terms of just things 
you can do around the house, sort of simple everyday things to sort of engage your senses more? A- any kind of quick tips you would give people um, that can help kind of make them healthier and happier um, in that <laughs> sense? <laughs> um, so lots of things. I think um, uh, certainly uh, smell is an important one. Uh, ambient uh, fragrance, and that can be one that's sort of you know easy to change, uh, be it just through uh, sort of picking a, a bunch of fragrant flowers. Think not just about how beautiful they look on your countertop, but how the scent. I've got a couple of lovely bowls of uh, lilies here at the moment. How that scent uh, can elevate your mood. Um, I think carefully about uh, sort of. Uh, Paint and colour have an impact too, but they tend to be a little bit harder to change. Uh, from everything I see, you know, sound, the music, or backdrop, it has a profound effect on us when we're out there in the marketplace, when we're shopping, when we're dining. Uh, and there's no reason to believe it doesn't have a similar kind of effect uh, in uh, the home environment too. Um, and then I'm sort of very fond of some of the des- some of the designers. Um, out there who sort of take the sort of five sense approach and say, you know, don't just think about the smell of your home, the color schemes and, uh, uh, and the sound, but then also maybe about touch as well as, as, as one of the neglected senses that so many of us are suffering from touch hunger. So make sure to have materials or surfaces that are pleasurable to touch. Uh, not quite full on tree hugging, but I've got you know, bits of bark and, uh, and conkers uh chestnuts uh, uh here on my desk in oxford be it a sort of a sensual throw or a rug but you know touches your biggest sense accounting to about 16 to 18 percent of body mass it's one that seems to be in the modern era really um under stimulated because of worries about um uh whatever uh, being taken inappropriately and yet uh, a growing amount of research shows just how beneficial stimulating the skin can be uh, through gentle touch um, and so anything you can do to make your home a little bit more tactilely interesting has got to be a good thing uh, and plants plants nature whether you see it hear it smell it feel it any or all of the especially all of the above are, are, are really probably the single biggest thing that you can do to to improve your mood to improve your well-being uh, to help you sleep more um and so uh, improve the quality of life. Now, uh, we we close out on, uh, we, we asked every, everyone this question, so we'll, we'll see where you go with it. Um, <laughs> it uh, on, a, on a good night for you, what would be your prime pairing of food, wine, and music? <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I guess my, my comfort food, I'm sort of drawn in a strange direction. It tends to be very uh, spicy. Uh, so it could be a, a Thai green curry, a pasta rabbiata. But the, the firier, the chillier, the better. Um, that is my sort of comfort food, the thing I crave when I when I go away from home. So it has to be in there, uh, and that probably constrains the rest to some degree. Um, though for, for me, the the, the uh, I'm sort of partial to um, uh, the Bordeaux. Expensive Bordeaux wine, which <laughs> you know, connects back to 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 to, to, um, to, to emotionally, or, or it's not quite a comfort food, but certainly has that sort of nostalgic resonance from when I first got into uh, uh, wine. And in terms of uh, the music, then um, something I like 
a lot. It sort of changes uh, as the uh, as the time goes by, but um, a lot of uh, bark at the moment, bark cantatas. It's probably the most commonly on the um, on the CD player, uh, which I guess that sort of a classical note, calming note, pleasant will all affect uh, both the food, the wine, their combination, uh, and me too. Excellent. So some excellent choices right there. He's Professor Charles Spence, uh, professor at Oxford University. Uh, you can find the latest book, Sense Hacking, How to Use the Power of Your Senses for Happier and Healthy Living happier and healthier living. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Just fascinating conversation. It's a really interesting line of work uh, that you're in. Yeah, thank you so, so much. That's a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you.